Hello, and welcome to the Echo of the Thunder. Uh, this is a podcast about the history and politics of Irish republicanism. I'm Daniel Baker, I'm a librarian and writer with a particular focus on Irish history, and in particular the National Revolutionary Period and the Troubles. If you want to check out my writing, you can visit my website and subscribe to it as a newsletter to receive further updates at echoandthunder.substack.com. Um, if you'd like to support this podcast and my writing, you can become one of my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Daniel Baker. Uh, before we begin today, I just thought I'd like to give you an idea of how I plan to structure and distribute the podcast. Um, I had planned for this to be a monthly podcast, and that commitment still stands, but there will be the odd special episode here and there in order to address particular historical anniversaries and to tie in with certain campaigns and events I'd like to support, as well as occasionally you know, current events in, in Irish politics as well. So, with this in mind, um, I'm really happy to announce that the second episode will be coming to you just a week from now. That's March the 8th. Uh, That'll celebrate International Women's Day, and I'll be speaking to historian, researcher and writer Liz Gillis, who'll be giving us an overview of the role of women and women's political organisations during the Irish Revolutionary Period of the early 20th century. For this episode, though, I wanted to define some terms and try and answer a simple question, but one that, as we'll see, opens up vast swathes of history and culture. And that question is, what is Irish Republicanism? Uh, To answer that question, I was absolutely delighted to welcome Fergal McCluskey to the show. Fergal is a native of County Tyrone. Uh, He's now based in Belfast, where he works as a historian, a lecturer, and a teacher. Uh, He's been described by his contemporary Brian Hanley as especially notable among his peers for the explicitly anti-imperialist nature of his analysis. This is reflected in two of the most notable strains of his work. That's his historical work on the revolutionary period, especially in Tyrone, and his criticism and reviews aimed at Irish historians of the revisionist school, and that's a subject that we'll touch on in this interview. Fergal's books and monographs include Fenians and Ribbon Men, which is a Gramscian analysis of popular Republican ideology centred on the established Fenian tradition in East Tyrone, uh, and also the Irish Revolution, Tyrone 1912-1923. to uh, That monograph dealt with the revolutionary period in Tyrone, and again incorporates a Marxist approach. It's informed by a class-based analysis of the competing blocks in the locality, um, and it's an attempt to write history from below, while not losing sight of the national and international perspective. Finally, there's also available The Men Will Talk To Me, Ernie O'Malley's interviews with the Northern Divisions, uh, to which Fergal contributes the introduction, which synthesises the Northern and Southern counter-revolutions and gives an overview of the revolutionary period from a humanist Marxist perspective. On top of all that, he also maintains a blog, which I'd highly recommend you keep up with, at blosc, that's B-L-O-S-C, dot wordpress dot com. So, without further ado, myself and Fergal McCluskey in conversation for this first episode of The Echo of the Thunder. I hope you enjoy it. All right. So, um, yeah, um, I want to start, Fergal, by just asking you, what are the core tenets of Irish republicanism as a political philosophy? And more importantly, I think, for our conversation, what are the historical and economic circumstances that it develops in? So Irish republicanism, in essence, is the application of the principles of the radical enlightenment to a colonial situation. So the Irish republicanism emerges in the 1790s after the French Revolution. Its major proponents are radical elements within uh, the reform movement within what was conceived of as the Irish Protestant nation. So the father of Irish Republicanism, Theobald Walsh Tone, had been pushing as, uh, as the secretary of the Catholic Association for Catholic entrance into the Irish Parliament after legislative independence in Scotland's Parliament had been achieved. This was obviously frustrated then the massive impact of July uh, 1789 then convinces the radical elements within this reformist uh, network, so to speak, that they need an overhaul of the entire political situation. This outlook is probably 
most advanced amongst uh, sort of a very radical constituency within the Presbyterian population in Belfast and Tone visits Belfast to celebrate Bastille Day. And he founds the Society of United Irishmen. And the thing about the United Irishmen and about republicanism then is that it's distinct from what many people would understand as Irish nationalism, which is synonymous, synonymous with Catholicism and perhaps even with social conservatism, is that republicanism in this sense makes an appeal to a civic nation, not, not an ethnic nationalism, not a religious nationalism, although it, it kind of often perplexed how you can get Catholic nationalism it's a universalist uh, church. So what their insight is based on, in essence, is not a refusal to acknowledge the colonial divisions in Ireland's past and the ethnic and the religious divisions in Ireland's past, but to use the universal rights uh, of the radical enlightenment as a means to transcend those divisions. They very famously said, we forever the walk on fields that our ancestors had stained with blood. So th th that, in essence, is the great dividing line between Irish republicanism and then what would be called Irish nationalism. Now, like all sort of dialectical movements within history, these are not self-contained or ethic concepts and you often get crossovers between them. But in principle, that is the fundamental difference, that Irish republicanism is uh, an offshoot of the radical enlightenment within a colonial context, which talks about the transcendence of colonial division in Ireland through the creation of a republic based on universal rights, liberty, equality, fraternity. And in that essence, it is avowedly anti-sectarian, not non-sectarian, anti-sectarian, to essentially locate the, uh, the, the problem, the, the chief structure and general problem of Irish history in terms of the colonial process and English intervention, although it could have been called British intervention, but English intervention, they use the word English, and to essentially look towards the severing of the connection of England, the establishment of a civic nation, not a Catholic or a Protestant nation, based on concept, universal rights as the, you know, what my objectives to sever the connection with England, the never-ending source of order or political is, what my means to unite, uh, to replace the name of Catholic Protestant descent with the common name of Irish man, we update that the Irish person in the present day. But that, in essence, is what republicanism is all about. Now, what constitutional nationalism is, is in essence uh, you, an Irish manifestation of British utilitarianism, of Benthamism, within the context of a colony, <laughs> which is where an emergent Catholic, uh, what Kevin Whelan calls the underground gentry, the, the middlemen class, and what will essentially uh, emerge under the context, first of all, of uh, the, the Protestant Irish Parliament, and then under the, the Union itself, as an emergent uh, big farmer grouping within sort of a, a Catholic landed elite and how they negotiate or renegotiate their position within the British polity within the terms of utilitarianism, the greatest possible benefit for the greatest possible number. And obviously the great champion of that there is Daniel O'Connell. And that's based on the premise, just a bit like, uh, you know, uplift suasion uh, ideas amongst black people in the United States of America is based on the actual acceptance and internalization of uh, the sublimation and subordination of Catholics in the Irish sense, but black people in the American sense. And to, to basically say that the way forward then is to accept your subjugation and to operate within 
the system and to kind of internalize and, uh, and uh, authorize more moralistically the conquest. And, that, and that's re really what uh, constitutional nationalism, which, which dominated the politics of Ireland, really. Republicanism was very uh, seldom ever been in the saddle <laughs> in Irish politics. And what we have now, even among some people who call themselves Republicans today, is, is a variant, really, of constitutional nationalism, which basically says the colonialization critique, what, what all colonialization powers do, is they produce another. They, they essentially say that people in possession of the territory of the country aren't in legitimate possession because it's, you know, they're, they're abusing it, or they're the other, or they're inferior, or they're not civilized, and therefore conquest and occasionally genocide is justified on that premise. What constitutional nationalism seemed to do, and what, what it did was to basically say that the, the British critique and the British modernity thesis and, and British liberalism was actually correct, and it was up to the indigenous population and elite amongst themselves to prove themselves worthy of entrance into the, the zone of the free. So you can see there automatically that there's a sharp dichotomy between uh, secular republicanism, which essentially seeks reconquest. And that's what James Fitton Lawler says, subsequently in the 1850s, not, not to overturn the, the, but to overturn the conquest, yeah? And uh, Connie will talk about it later on, the reconquest of Ireland. Constitutional nationalism is about, uses the language of nationalism, uses a very Catholic identity, Catholic Irish identity, and a sort of ethnic mobilization as a means for an emergent bourgeois class within Ireland to gain entry into the polity, to gain uh, access, if you want to say, to the master's table. And those are the two big, <coughs> the good two big poles within Irish nationalist politics. The, the, the third element, obviously, in Irish nationalist politics is the existing colonialist element, which is manifested in loyalism and Ulster unionism, which is essentially an argument that these people occupy, as Lesurdo would say, a profane space, and they can't gain entry into liberty, and liberty being very different from freedom in that context. It's not universalist, it's conditioned by, well, in its early 20th century, and even in its late 18th century manifestation in Ireland, it's based on an idea about supremacism or superiority and inferiority, which is articulated in terms of notions of race and religion. So those are the three main streams within Irish history. So republicanism presents itself then, ironically, because of the fact that it's often accused of being incredibly irrational and sectarian and sometimes Catholic, it's actually the secular anti-sectarian <laughs> ideology within Irish history, which confronts two sectarian ideologies. One, a supremacist and colonialist uh, ideology of loyalism, and then the other, essentially an assimilationist or a utilitarian perspective, which accepts the notion of Irish inferiority and the legitimation and, and uh, the, the rightness, if you like, of English occupation and try to work within that framework. So that's why you get Daniel O'Connell drinking water from the vine and toasting the health of King William and the Glorious Revolution. So, and, 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 and other uh, similar manifestations of what, what he himself called West Britainism whenever the Lichfield House Compact was put through it, you know, it made so in terms of justice and circumstance, we were willing to become a type of West Britain. So generally, and very briefly, those are the three big poles in Irish history. Irish Republicanism, and you probably can guess from my own uh, articulation of the different positions, would be the one that I think anyone of, of any sort of a left-wing tendency 
or in any one who emerges from in the humanist tradition, although obviously some people would argue that the liberalism of someone like O'Connell would have manifestations of universalism within it, particularly his attitude towards slavery and to uh, anti-Semitism, which were incredibly progressive. But if you move from the from the particular to the general, anyone who's who's of, of the left or anyone who's you know remotely of a humanist perspective would probably be siding with the Republicans in the conflict or in the the, the historical conjuncture, if you want to say. And then another thing about it is is that what O'Connell did was, and he was he was not averse to using political violence. And certainly, he, he loved having jewels. He was a member of the Yeomanry, and he thought that British state violence was legitimate in Ireland. But with help from other uh, forces now, none more so than the Catholic Church, which again begins to emerge then as a sort of an ideological manifestation of this emergent Catholic bourgeoisie, is that he posits this, this false dichotomy. And the false dichotomy, which is a pejorative against republicanism, really, is that constitutional nationalism is based on moral force. And republicanism is based on physical force. And to the detriment of many Republicans, some of them seem to have sort of accepted and internalized uh, that false dichotomy. This completely ignores the level of structural violence in Ireland. It ignores the fact that there's no social contract in Ireland that is based on colonialism, that across the Act of Union, there, uh, out of, there was 103, I think, separate coercion acts that the British statesmen basically acknowledged that if it wasn't for you know the garrison and coercion the British the English couldn't rule Ireland so the this idea about moral this false dichotomy between moral and physical force is a false dichotomy because it is blind to or myopic in terms of the massive structure and violence that went into conquering the country in the first place and as we know colonialism isn't an, an event it's a process, and that the, the maintain the, the, that uh, structured violence is always there. And, and in, in a situation of occupation, then, you know, it's legitimate to have resistance. It's not always politically astute or wise, and it's not always uh, morally appropriate, but that's the dynamic in which republicanism operated, and it's operated in the dynamic where the imperial power, the metropole, has consistently denied or subverted uh, the Irish people's demand for independence, for uh, for this Republic of Tone. Uh, again, there'd be several other ways uh, to look at this, and, and you'd look at it then in, in terms of, of social class, and unsurprisingly, in light of what I've just said, and what Henry J. McCracken and Thomas, or Wolf Tone said, and Thomas Russell said, these people from middle-class backgrounds have become socially radical in the process of the revolutionary movement. McCracken says before the Battle of Antrim, the rich always betray the poor. Wolf Tone says if the men have property, when that help us return to that respectful class, the men have no property. There's always been a general uh, equivalence between support for republicanism and people from lower social classes uh, across uh, the long 19th century, as Hobson would have called it. And republicanism essentially has been the political ideology of the Irish poor in Ireland and uh, in its diaspora as well. Obviously then constitutional nationalism has tended to be the political ideology of an assimilationist and quite well-heeled, emergent and then established uh, Catholic bourgeois section in society.
I mean, I wanted to come in there and um, and sort of um, um, pick up on something you mentioned there. There's, there's two strands that I want to sort of un unpack there. The first one is um, is um, this. I mean, certainly for for someone of my generation, my age, I'm I'm, I'm from the north of England. I'm 36 years old. Um, I was brought up um, with images of the troubles on on TV, um, usually right, um, you know, usually near the end of the news, unless there was actually something that had happened in England, um, uh, you know. Um, and um, I think for for me, there was a notion that um, you know, republicanism, um, um, you know, analogous to the most extreme loyalism, was a tradition that was um, inextricably linked to sectarianism. That's how it was presented by you know the BBC, um, by um, you know um, the British state. Um, and um, if you could maybe just um, um, un unpack and sort of disentangle a little bit more um, how you think, um, you know, viewing things through the prism of recent history, like the Troubles, um, has um, has sort of um, made those associations in people's minds who might not be fully aware of the entire history of the conflict sort of more concrete. Yeah, well, that, that operates in two levels. The first is that essentially an awful lot of Irish historiography and academic writing uh, on Republican history over the course of 200 years has been conditioned and kind of retracted through the lens of what, in essence, is Ministry of Defence propaganda during the Troubles. You, and then that, that's on one level. And then because of that, there you get controversies about these, you know, sectarian republicanisms and you get the 1916 raising, you know, uh, portrayed as jihadists and you know compared to 9-11 or that I, I read that review actually that you've got on your website um a bit. that's from a specific book actually isn't it that that reference yeah. is made which seems utterly frenzied to me but there you go <laughs> yeah so so the, the, the essentially what an awful lot of academic history has attempted to do is to uh project what what was essentially british propaganda during the troubles which was britain's a neutral arbiter these are two warring ethno-religious tribes. These people are clearly uncivilized and crazy, and we are just here to try and keep the peace. And that's what, what Britain said. And, and that's been projected back across Republican history, when in essence, it's a complete inversion of, histor of historical reality, all the way back to uh, the foundation of the Fenians in, you know, in 1848. And you look at that again, they're secular Republican, they're egalitarian, and they're, they're anti-sectarian. They're the only anti-sectarian movement in Irish history, yeah, who call for and they're anti-clerical as well, although not not to the extent in terms of, of a great many of their own personal faith, but in terms of, of their opposition to what's called the priest in politics. So they don't just go as far as you know their compatriots in France or in places like Andalusia or Catalonia in terms of their anti-clericalism, but they're of that milieu, and you know, and they owe a big debt to people like Blanqui and that tradition in Francis for Stevens. Uh, essentially cuts his teeth as an underground secret revolutionary. You look at the Fenian proclamation of, of 1867, it's probably more radical than the 1916 proclamation in terms of intrinsic value of labour, getting rid of the parasitic class, makes an appeal to the English working class in terms of fraternal, fraternity. And uh, th this goes right through Republican history. So like in the period before the Home Rule crisis in the 1916 rising, become the revolutionary leadership of 1916 is, is essentially the coming together three elements of that uh, radical humanist tradition within Irish nationalism. That, that is to say, the uh, I always kind of, you have to call it uh, socialist republicanism, not republican socialism, because, you know, not all... <laughs> Not all Republicans are socialists, but all socialists should be Republicans. And I wouldn't trust the socialist who's, you know, saluting the monarchy or uh, any other such nonsense. But uh, the so you get that Connaught tradition, which, which 
again is if you like uh, a re-articulation within the conditions of an emergent British labour movement and second international Marxism of what is essentially uh, that sort of uh, millenarian sort of proto-socialism of the, the Irish secret societies and, and, and the Ulster rural poor in particular. So both, it's no coincidence both Larkin and Connolly are from Monaghan, South Armagh in their origins because that's, 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 that's in essence is what these people have believed. It, it, it's that infusion between what Jim Smith calls inherent and derived ideology born from George Rude of this radical enlightened republicanism meeting with this very vociferous populist anti-colonialism, which, which again had manifestations in England as well. You, you, you can see the echoes of this in, in something like the A.P. Thompson's making the English working class, but it's operating under a different framework. You know, it, the English working class were still freeborn Englishmen, <laughs> Irish people clearly weren't. So this, uh, this uh, republicanism is always anti-sectarian. So that element, that republican social element then com combines with that Fenian tradition. And again, you just, you, this sort of neo-Fenian tendency, this, this grouping of uh, people who are, who are highly attracted to the culture, the cultural revival, and are virulently anti-imperialist in their politics. So I'm thinking here, people like Sean McDermott, Patrick McCartan, Bulmer Hobson, Dennis McCullough, these people are, are overtly anti-sectarian. Bulmer Hobson's a Quaker. You know, a lot of these people are, are Protestants and they're, they're explicitly anti-sectarian in their politics. And then you get pulled into that, then you get the most radical tendency within the cultural revival. And, and, and that essence, you're talking about the likes of Plunkett, McDonough and Pierce. And again, incredibly anti-sectarian in their politics. So, so the, the, those three streams that, that are, and if they share anything, they share an anti-sectarianism, fervent anti-imperialism. Obviously, Connolly has a Marxist analysis of the type of society that he wants to create, and he, he wants the working class to be in the saddle, as George Orwell made of seven years turn around Catalonia. The, the Republicans and the cultural nationalists are all are, are all all support the lockout in, in Dublin in 1913, but they're not explicitly class conscious in their analysis. They're not looking to triumph of the working class. They're typically the, 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 this is the some people may say would be one of the great shortfalls and problems with Irish republicanism is, is that rather it's not blind to class it's that class isn't central to it and then you have that tension within but in 1916 and this is the, the truth is the, the 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 revolution emerges from those tendencies within our society that are both anti-imperialist anti-sectarian and egalitarian and the people who are opposed to the rising, the constitutional nationalists, are pro-imperial. They're expl explicitly Catholic nationalists. Their major political network is the Order of Iberians. And obviously, the you know, the Austrian party. You have to be a Protestant to sign the covenant. <laughs> you know, they're just They're just explicitly sectarian, and religion becomes essentially a racial signifier uh, during this period. So, so that that projection back. Of sectarianism is rubbish. It, it's just it's just not a legitimate argument. It doesn't correspond with any of the the archive. It doesn't correspond with anything that these people believed or expressed. But that doesn't matter because the the target was 1916. The target was 1969 onwards. But if you actually look then, and again, this is this is not to suggest that the provisional IRA campaign didn't carry out atrocities. Like the Kingsman massacre was an explicitly sectarian attack where, where, where people were killed because they were Protestants. 
But that was actually the exception to what the general rule was. And if you look at the, the entire statistics of fatalities during the conflict, the most discriminating group in the conflict were the provisional IRA. And the majority of the, the Protestant civilians who were killed were killed because wasn't the, weren't intentionally killed. They were killed along with Catholic civilians in bombs. Yeah. Which isn't, you know, doesn't make that any nicer or doesn't make it any more, you know, acceptable to the, the families of people who were killed. But the most discriminating element within that conflict and the least sectarian element within that conflict were the provisional IRA. What we now know is that over 80% of loyalist uh, killings were indiscriminate killings of civilians. So indiscriminate that they actually, 20% of those civilian casualties were Protestants that they mistook for Catholics. And then we look that over half of the, the, the killings kill, carried out by the Crown forces or the security forces are civilian killings. And people say, yes, but the loyalists and, uh, and the, the Crown forces aren't linked. Well, actually, we now know that they were linked and that, you know, very early on and Kitson's counterinsurgency policy and there was the adoption and the use of loyalist paramilitaries as a proxy. And the war was directed against the Republican insurgents and the campaign of the loyalists was facilitated through quite a substantial network of collusion across several competing branches of the intelligence services. So the narrative that Britain wanted to project about the troubles, about the, the conflict and the troubles and what, what no one would have heard uh, or what everybody heard on the BBC and everybody he, hears that, that you know, the area killed more people than anybody during the troubles, but half the people that the area killed during the troubles were carrying guns. They, you know, they were part of the same structure of violence, that structure of violence that goes right back to the conquest and, and, and British rule in Ireland. And then you have to start asking questions. Well, if it's not about two irrational tribes, why was there a conflict in the North of Ireland? The reason why there was a conflict in the North of Ireland is that the British state as, an, uh, as the biggest empire in the world who quite hypocritically applied the principle of self-determination in Central and Eastern Europe after the First World War, its empire grew. In fact, it, in some quite significant territories, particularly one in the Middle East. And uh, the, the, the reason why there was a conflict in the North of Ireland is that despite the fact that on two occasions, in the December 1918 general election and subsequently the local government elections of January and June 1920, the Irish people, and in 1920, over 70% of them voted for parties that expressively demanded an Irish Republic. And the British government responded to those two election results, particularly the 19 the election results with massive coercion. And an aspect of that massive coercion was the deliberate instigation of a pogrom in Belfast and the state arming of the UVF in the form of the Ulster Special Constabulary in a province where there was actually quite a significant amount of evidence that considerable sections, particularly of the Protestant unskilled working class, were not particularly loyalist in their politics or determined on partition. Partition was an imperially instigated policy to leave whatever type of independent Ireland that emerged a virtual British possession and to make sure that there wouldn't be a domino effect across the empire. And if you read the private correspondence of British statesmen in the period, and if you particularly read Tom Jones's, Ray George's secretary uh, diary, you see that this was underpinned by, by notions of race. Poner law calls the Irish an inferior race. Lord Milner, who essentially himself and Kirsten are responsible for Lloyd George becoming Prime Minister in 1916, and who, you know, 
Him and Walter Long, who actually draws the partition line and was going to give nine counties partition and then was told by James Craig, who was a junior minister in his department, that they couldn't control nine counties. And in the, during the Home Year crisis, they set up the Ulster Defence Union, which is the British and imperial version of the Covenant. And they pledged to save the white settler colony of Ulster from submersion in the sea of inferior cats. So what no one is ignoring or denying that there isn't some sort of democratic and liberal tradition within British politics, that, that the, the Whig reading of, of, of English history doesn't have some legitimacy. It clearly does. But the problem is what you were watching on TV in the 1980s when you were growing up was an incredibly narrow and substantially incorrect version of Britain's role in Ireland, which again is, is one of these great, you know, Einstein says, <laughs> you know, his first thing of Germain is trying to do the same, same thing again and again and expect a different result at the end. But if you actually look at political cartoons, this is this sort of strange amnesia, this political amnesia that the British commentariat and elite suffer about Ireland is ridiculous. So if you actually look at cartoonists from Pay through to Salisbury, through to Ted Heath, all present the British Prime Minister Sisyphus, rolling the rock of Ireland up to the top of the hill. There's a very sim simple solution. <laughs> the Irish problem to get out. Like, you know, don't manufacture problems for yourself by uh, disguising what are essentially quite cynical and strategic imperial interests and force majeure as some sort of liberal concessions to you know uh, Britain's inherent democratic and liberal traditions, because that's clearly not the case. Um, I, I'd suggest that um, you know uh, when I was growing up, um, it was something that. Um, it never quite sat right with me uh, because, um, you know, I was from um, I was from a left wing family. My mum and dad would be what you might describe as sort of old old Labour uh, um, sort of voters. So sort of, you know, the the slight left of social democracy. Um, and, um, the, you know, the, the older I got and the more I began to question the narrative of the British state, especially in relation to Ireland. I mean, you know, like you said, the more it completely falls apart upon inspection. Um, and I think there's a, a couple of things that I sort of uh, I really picked up from that. And the first one, and this is something that I, I'm writing about at the moment and that um, I've written about in, in articles for New Socialist and, and elsewhere, um, is we mentioned that question of violence. And it seems to me that Republican violence has kind of historically always been seen as like a first and, and, and most debased violence. Um, you know, it's it's separated from the violence of, the, of colonial domination and political repression. Um, and, and what isn't mentioned, uh, as you've just outlined there, is what it's reacting to. Is, is, is the structures that it's reacting to and the, and the structures that, that sort of that, that birth it. Um, so um, I wonder if maybe you could say a little bit about how um, in contemporary political debates, I'm thinking here, particularly in the south of Ireland at the moment, um, that the question, the question of violence and the associations of violence are used and abused. Yeah, well, the, 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 the key, you see, what you have to understand about the, the southern political establishment is that the polity is essentially counter-revolutionary. So it's it's the, the the 26 counties, the free state, is, is a counter-revolutionary entity. What happens is elements within the popular liberation struggle, some for, a, if you look at someone like Michael Collins, probably out of wrong-headed sort of attempts to hubris, I would probably call it, but what the Anglo-Irish Treaty does is that it divides the national rev, uh, independence struggle between its most progressive and anti-imperialist tendency 
and what had always been quite a gnarly nationalist and socially conservative and right-wing type of nationalism. That, that's personified in the figure of Arthur Griffith. The, the big tragedy with Michael Collins is that Michael Collins essentially uses his authority within the anti-imperialist section to pull a, a sufficient number of those people across to the counter-revolutionary settlement out of the wrong-headed idea that he was going to use it as a stepping stone towards you know, achieving uh, independence and overturning partition, which is crazy in retrospect. But what sets itself up then as the free state is essentially the most conservative element within the Sinn Féin movement, characterized here by someone like uh, Kevin O'Higgins, who, who in, in background is essentially a Heliate. And what, what I mean by a Heliate, it's related to Tim Healy, what I mean by a Heliate is the most socially conservative and upper class Catholic element, a faction of constitutional nationalism that sort of like a barnacle wails itself on to the popular liberation struggle out of political uh, opportunism. These people had been the, the political spokesmen of William Martin Murphy. <laughs> so the, the irony of the Sinn Féin movement is that in 1913, whenever these Republicans and these cultural nationalists and were, were backing Connolly and, and, and the socialists, they, they, they had taken a, a very divergent path from other people who had been involved in the first Sinn i.e. Arthur Griffith, who backs William Martin Murphy. In fact, in the period directly before the Home Rule crisis, the Sinn Féin movement was about to split anyway between the Griffithite wing, who were looking to cut a deal with William O'Brien and Tim Healy, who were the political spokesmen of William Martin Murphy and Big Irish Capital, and these neo-Fenians. And the great irony is that the, the grouping within the revolutionary coalition that come to power in the free state aren't Collins and 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 these you know Republicans who are you know who are pragmatically accepting this in order to you know achieve their ultimate goal. The free state very very quickly eliminates <laughs> in a piece of salami politics that Joseph Stalin would have been very proud of, or Rakosi or somebody like that would have been very proud of. Quickly eliminates these people, and what becomes the elite then is that very faction that was taking shape in 1910 between big business, the Catholic Church, and this sort of a uh, petty bourgeois nationalism in the Griffithite mold. And they attach themselves onto the old rump of constitutional nationalists who had never supported the call for a republic. And, and, and how do they then impose their will? They impose their will through the use of violence, violence that is precipitated by the threat of even greater violence by the imperial state. So as Liam Maddow is very famous, he says in the Doll Debates, this treaty is not the will of the people, it's the fear of the people. Michael Collins constructed a four-way plank uh, in order to pull enough of the, 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 the Sinn Féin movement with him in order to gain widespread acceptance. He says that it's a freedom to achieve freedom. He promises that there'll be a Republican constitution written within uh, the terms of uh, the free state. He, he, he comes up with an electoral pact with De Valera, uh, the, the Sinn Féin panel pact for the free state elections. And he surreptitiously and secretly carries out uh, an IRA campaign with anti-treaty IRA uh, volunteers against Craig's government in the north. And what in essence happens here is that the British tell him that it's not on, that republicanism is actually outlawed. So he goes to Britain, goes over to London, Griffith goes over first, then Collins goes over with the, the, the constitution that he had got Hugh Kennedy to write for him and the British throw it in the bin and tell him to go home and here's an imperial constitution. And on the day of the election, 
He tells people to vote for whomever they wish. And the big, this is the great irony of this, is that Winston Churchill tells him that, that the panel is anti-democratic. This is the same person who hasn't accepted democratic wishes for two years. But this is also a former member of the Liberal Party who is in a government that was elected on the token election. So it was okay for the, the British government to be elected. So, and, and, and the free state election is an election in which other parties can stand and which Sinn Féin wants to try and set up a coalition government to avoid a civil war. And the civil war is precipitated by the threat of British unilateral intervention. Four days before Collins attacks the Republican garrison in the four courts, which, by the way, were not intent on a coup d'etat and were not looking to take over the state. In fact, they were under the delusion that they were going to take part in a joint IRA offensive with Collins' troops in Bagger's Bush against the Northern government. So four days before this, the British government order General McCready to attack the four courts, and McCready tells him to wise up and says, if you do that, all these people that Collins has pulled over to the Free State will automatically find common cause with republicanism again, and we'll be back to war. So the choice, the choice in, in, in 1921 was between two types of civil war. One was a civil war with Craig and the Loyalists and the, and the, the reactionaries backed by the, the British state. And the other one was a civil war between the con most conservative element of the liberation movement backed by you know, the British imperial state. And with, we have to say, the support of a very war-weary population and the, the anti-imperialist and the most progress progressive elements. The tragedy is that the socialist elements and the anti-imperialist republican elements in the civil war period are heterogeneous. You know, they're not consolidated in their position, in their policy, in their opposition to uh, the free state. Some people make this ridiculous idea that, you know, there's no class dimension. <laughs> there's no class dimension to the Irish Civil War. You know, it kind of reminds me of Lenin laughing about the people who said that the 1916 rising wasn't a social revolution. These people would know. The, the, the Irish Civil War clearly has a class dimension. It's the reimposition of the, the class structure of Irish society before the First World War. It's the Catholic Church, it's indigenous capital, and it's petty and the worst reaction tendencies within the big former class and petty bourgeois nationalism. That's what the, the civil war is about. The tragedy of the civil war is that at the same time as this is happening, you have widespread working class militancy across the country. You have Soviets in Munster, you have the uh, Waterford farm laborers strike, but none of this is used or protected by those who are standing up for the Republic and standing up for anti-imperialism. In fact, in some instances, the anti-trade area are putting down strikes. So the, 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 you may think, what has this got to do with the way that they're talking about violence in the South at the minute? This, the South is a reactionary and anti-revolutionary polity that was born out of imperial violence, right? And the central contradiction is that they talk the language and the ideology, even Fianna Fáil of republicanism, and they, they hold the, the you know the, the old IRA up as you know this honourable tradition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that polity and that political establishment has essentially been pro-imperial and pro-British and partitionist in its outlook since inception. Since inception. So what what happened in the north, and and this is quite clear, is what happened in the north is that the thing blew up in their face. And they were forced to make a choice. And they, they made the, the choice that best fitted their wider strategic interests. They were going to join the European Union with Britain. 
they were integrated in terms of Britain, in terms of trade, and they had a choice between supporting a working class insurrection in the six counties or siding with the British. And they sided with the British. It's very, very clear. And they sided with the British in spite of the fact that, and we'll be very honest here, the, the, the British and particularly the Unionist mishandling of events between 1969 to 1971, which was January 1972, essentially creates the provision. It's, 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 it's very clear. So you have, you know, you have an awful lot of empty rhetoric about the fourth green field and, you know, overturning partition and the anti-partition league and Devilair goes up and gets arrested, but not, they don't have any plan or interest in overturning partition. They're pro-status quo the whole time. What 1969 does is that it crystallizes the uh, the inherent and irresolvable contradiction in their ideological position and their strategic position. And they have to choose, and they choose very, very clearly. After some early provocation, partition and what the Brits say, that goes. Their analysis of the conflict is our analysis of the conflict. The IRA are sectarian, they're thugs, they're murderers, and they're criminals. And they decontextualize the whole thing and they forget their own history. But they don't really forget their own history because if you look at the Dublin political establishment, they were pro-imperialist reactionaries in 1921. So there you go. You'll not hear that too often <laughs> in the Southern <laughs> media. But it's, well, it, it, it's, I think there's a good historical basis for it, you know. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Um, that, that sort of brings us on to something else that I wanted to, to ask you about, which is, um, you know, I think this is evident, especially in um, your work on like the revolutionary period in, in Tyrone. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that um, that orthodoxy that has sort of um, that has sprung up that, uh, you know, that there was a sort of inevitability to the conservatism um, of the, of the revol- uh, you know, to the, the, the conservatism of the post-revolutionary period. Um, you know, I'm thinking here of the um, the, the Kevin, Higgin, uh, Kevin Higgins quote of, um, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 most conservative, you know, if, if, if this is a revolution, one of the most conservative revolutionaries ever. Um, and I think one of the things that I value in, in your work is that you, you know, you emphasize that, that this wasn't a historical inevitability, you know, that that conservatism was deeply contested um and you, you, know, you try and give voice to the aspirations and the ambitions of those who who did strive for something more radical and more liberating you know there's a focus on the lives of kind of um you know um, um everyday people trade unionists those involved in strikes that kind of thing in your work and I've, I've noticed that you often bring up that um that fantastic ep thompson phrase about you know the 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 i think it's the awful condescension of posterity um uh, you know so perhaps you could talk a little bit about that angle um, of your work in terms of how you approach things no it's The, well, first of all, growing up in a working class family in East Tyrone, I kind of knew that there were an awful lot more socialists around <laughs> than we were being given credit for in, in history books. Or it, when I was getting taught in school, you know, it was all about great men. And I kind of resented that because even a very, even a very superficial and partial understanding of the way that the troubles developed and what was going on in the, in the uh, area in which I live seemed to demonstrate that working class and, and the agency of ordinary people clearly had some profound historical effect. Now, it didn't always, and it didn't tend to, end in, in the fulfillment of the aspirations that these people had, but it clearly was incredibly important. So whenever I went to start doing research in Tyrol, I obviously went looking for IRA men because that's what I was told that I would find. And... No, actually, it wasn't. I was told I wouldn't find anything because they were all basically at mass. But uh, so, <laughs> you know, and, and tipping their hats to the local landlord and stuff. And uh, but what I actually found was, and it was quite perplexing because I, I'd never read anything about any of this. 
I found that an awful lot of Protestants from Belfast were coming down organizing Catholics and Protestants in linen mills. My father and my grandfather actually worked in these linen mills in Dungannon. And they were quite surprised to hear about this as well. And I, uh, and my grandfather was from Donald Moore and I, I read about this strike where these Catholic and Protestant people in the soap factory uh, went strike and paraded up and down Donald Moore village with a red flag. And I, the very image of it was shocking to me. And I was like, if you actually went, ever went to Donald Moore, it's like the sort of quintessential Irish village. There's a Celtic cross and a church in the middle of it, like, you know, and it's just rural. But these people were parading up and down with a red flag. They were, you know, driving lorries through gates. They were being lifted by the police. They were having rallies and parading torchlight processions through Dungan and Donald. I went, what? No one has ever told me anything about this. And then I looked at it and I went, oh, I know what's happening now. Is that there was a brief window in Irish history where for the first time in, in a very long time, lower class people, really poor working class people, had the conditions in which they could demand better. That essentially there was this sweet spot between about 1916 and uh, early 1920. And, and in Lenin, it's it, it, it it, it ends a bit earlier, it ends in 1919, which is one of the big reasons why the linen workers don't take part in the Belfast General Strike, because obviously the, their wartime boom was more uh, reliant on war contracts than in shipbuilding and, and the other uh, industries and, and also that kind of benefited from that, uh, that sort of consumption boom after the First World War. But, but what's, what happens to these people is that there's an awful lot of money in the country and Employers are making fortunes, but they're not paying them. But there's also a scarcity of labor. So for this very brief period, for like about two or three years, working class people get themselves organized because there's a there's a cost of living crisis and a lot of them are starving. They can't afford to buy bread. And they, they, they really just set the place on fire. They, like in areas that you wouldn't think there'd be trade union militancy, there was trade union militancy. And religion was transcended. Issues of sectarianism were transcended. The, the article that I written on Caledon is my favorite, is the, my favorite example is where like orange men, orange men who are related to other orange men who worked in Monaghan Asylum, get Potter O'Donnell and the Irish Transport and General Workers Union to organize the workers in Caledon Mullinville. And John Fulton knows Caledon Mullinville, he's a Belfast orange man, he's deeply connected, he's mason, he's best mates with Fred Crawford, who's this atrocious fascist gun runner and you know sectarian pogromist. He's also a, a loyalist hero. He's not a gun runner, and he 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 he's, he also knows Dawson Bates, who's even probably worse than Fred, than Fred Crawford. And the and O'Donnell organizes these people, and and the the employer obviously uh, kicks out a couple of workers and claims that he's looking to make room for. Turning ex-servicemen, they use the ex-servicemen. But the two the two Golden brothers who kick out were ex-servicemen. They were Catholic soldiers and their brother had been killed fighting in the British army. And essentially what the employer does is he locks everybody out and then he only lets people come back on a sectarian basis. And uh, 12 Protestant families refuse to go back and actually, I think, they go to Yorkshire. And when Potter O'Donnell is, uh, they work in a similar wool mill, I think, in Yorkshire. I think it's in Yorkshire. It is in Yorkshire, yeah. And when Potter O'Donnell's on hunger strike in Mountjoy Jail during the Civil War, they send him over letters and cards and uh, they lift his, his spirits. So that what, what that demonstrated to me was that 
sectarianism is not immutable. That sectar the, the, the sectarianism and this, this great polarization that takes place within Northern Zary, no one is pretending for a minute that, that there was not sectarianism based on the colonial history of Ulster. There was, there clearly was. In fact, the institutions of the state are based on it, right? But it serves the class interests of the, the elite within this area. And it was used, it was used cynically to smash emergent working class solidarity that there is widespread evidence for. So after I looked at Caledon, I, I looked at, at the there were strikes in Kalilan, Cookstown, Dungannon, Donnapore. These places are not resigned to as hotbeds for trade union militancy. Caledon and I went, what is this happening anywhere else? So I went and I looked and I've had a chapter coming out next year. This is happening in Portadown. There's a, there's a former orangeman called William Vannard who is an organiser for the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union, right, in the South. He was also a member of the NUR, right, because Porter Downs is the hub of the North, right? And he, he gets Conleyite socialists to come to the Cooperative Hall in Porter Down and talk about, talk about the Cooperative Commonwealth and the establishment of the Workers' Republic. He's elected the Porter Down Urban District Council. He's obviously driven out of Porter Down during the pogrom, but the same thing happens in Lurgan. Lurgan is like synonymous with sectarianism. There's like an invisible line. Most Ulster towns have this east-west invisible line and the Catholics all live in the west and the Protestants all live uh, in the east. It's, well, the town A is from the same, but Lurgan's actually even worse because it, 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 everybody knows about it, right? The, the January 1920 urban council elections elected an anti-partitionist Labour majority to Lurgan Urban District Council. There were five Catholics and three Protestants. They were all linked to the, the Workers' Union and the Belfast Labour Party. The Belfast Labour Party is predominantly Protestant. Most of them are colony socialists, with very few exceptions, they're all anti-partitionists. They win 12 seats in Belfast in the January 1920 local government elections. They 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 you win more seats than Sinn Féin and the Nationalist Party combined. There's David Rob Campbell. Sam Cale is a colony aid socialist. He's a Protestant. He tops the poll in the Schenkel division in these elections, in a PR election. There were more socialist Republicans in the Schenkel ward in 1920 than in the Falls. Now, they didn't get the majority of votes in Belfast, but they were a considerable constituency. They were a considerable political tendency. And their support base was, as far as the evidence can say, was primarily unskilled. And a lot of women voted for them because they were the people, Dawson Gordon, Sam Kay, Bob McClung, they were the people who organized these women from 1916 onwards and got them better conditions in, in the, the linen mills. Now, what is the unionist response to this? Well, look, an awful lot of historians say the unionist leadership had nothing to do with the violence of July 1920. This is rubbish. It's complete rubbish. Like if you actually look at the record and you look at the, the, the events, Dawson Bates direct, controlled and directed the pogrom. Like and another article coming out in Studio Air on Desi in the new year. It's there, it's just there in the archive. Edward Carson founds the Ulster Unionist Labour Association, which is based on Milner's British Workers League. It's a proto-fascist organization, it's anti-labor, it's it, 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 the the British Democratic Party, this, this, and the, 
Kirsten insists that these Ulster Labour Association stand for candidates as official unionist candidates in 1918. They're elected because it's first past the post and all the unionists, there's no other unionist candidates, so the unionists vote, vote for them. But the Ulster Union Labour Association is founded by Edward Carson, right? It's, it's an adjunct of the Ulster Unionist Council. Its chairman is J.M. Andrews. This is a labour organisation. J.M. Andrews is a mill owner. So the chairman of a labour of a labour movement is a mill owner, right? And they answer to Dawson Bates, Richard Dawson Bates, who's the secretary of the Unionist Council. He controls everything they do. They're in his minutes. Mister Bates says, "Do this." We say, "How high?" Right? Before Edward Carson gives his notorious speech at Finnehy on the twelfth of July in nineteen twenty, before the pogrom, right? He meets the Ulster Unionist Labour Association at Clifton House. It's in the archive. It's in their minutes, right? And then the next day that they return to, and he says, I hate the words without action. These men who come forward as friends of Labour care no more about Labour than does the man on the moon. They're here to sell you into slavery and they're just a front for shit being. And these are not words, I hate words without action, right? And then now Smith gets killed in, in the meantime. The, the guy who, who basically told the police in the stole to shoot as many people as possible. The more you shoot, the more I like. And there's a mutiny and then he's shot by IRA. And some historians use this as the premise for the expulsion. But the expulsions have been pre-planned. And the next and the first day back at work uh, in Workman's and Clark's, they have a meeting under the guise of the Ulster Protestant Association. But it's not the Ulster Protestant Association. It's the Ulster Unionist Labour Association. Because if you look in their minute books later on in the year, they take disciplinary charges. The two principal organisers of the pogrom, John, one of them is called James Connolly, <laughs> ridiculously, yeah. And the other one's John Crumlin. And they take disciplinary charges against Nicholas Gordon, who's a, a member of the Ulster Union's Labour Association executive, to say that he refused to have the meeting when they direct, i.e. the Ulster Union's Labour Association took disciplinary action against one of its members for not fulfilling his role sufficiently when they instituted the expulsions. So this organisation that Edward Carson founded, Dawson Bates controlled, and Carson met them before he gives his speech, and then they expelled 10,000 Catholics and rotten Protestant socialists from the shipyards, right? The Ulster Unionist leadership had nothing to do with this. And Bates writes a letter to Carson off them, congratulating himself on how well they've done. And yet historians go, no, the Ulster Unionist leadership had nothing to do with this. Carson gets up in the House of Commons and calls the shipyard works in Belfast the greatest friends he has in the world. James Craig presents him with a flag and he says, do I agree with the thing that you said? Yes, I do. What was the British government's response to that? It recruited them all into the Ulster Special Constabulary. It paid them £6 million for two years during an economic global depression. It essentially created the material conditions where you had to be a loyalist to work in the main industries, in the foundries, the engineering works and the shipyards. And then ancillary income came from joining a paramilitary police force. So the, the, the Unionist leadership and the British imperial state create the material conditions for a discriminatory loyalist supremacist regime that rules for 50 years. And they don't intervene in any of this. And there's systemic discrimination. And the, and the Dublin establishment sit on their hands because it's not in their interests. So the only people who can break this uh, inhuman <laughs> structure are the wretched of the earth, the, the nationalist working class in the six counties. And that's essentially what happens. It takes them away. But in 1969, when, when, when they, they, they're asked to be treated as equal subjects of 
Her Majesty, they're beaten into the ground. And then what, what does the British state do? And this is key. And the, the Labour Party's as bad as the, the Tories in this, is that they, they introduce troops who are there to keep the peace, right? But the, they essentially hand authority over the, the troops over to the Unionist regime. So the Provisional IRA don't exist in August 1969. They don't exist until January. Yeah, so in essence, what happens is that the, the provos are a direct result of, first of all, tensions within republicanism in the South where uh, elements within the Republican League, Goody and McGill are essentially are adopting the, the policy previously developed by Greaves and then articulated by Coughlin and Johnson. And they're, they're, they're abandoning an awful lot of that very moralistic and, and, and quite self-defeating uh, Republican moralism about not getting into the, the, the doll, right? And this leads then to a, 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 a serious content a sort of confrontation with Southern traditionalists centered on McStephane, O'Connell, and, and O'Brady. Now, this then runs in conjunction with the winding down of military organization. So when, whenever the pogrom takes place on the 14th and 15th of August, there is really in no position to protect Northern nationalists. And, and again, you get like massive state violence. You get like coordination between the RUC who go, drive up and down Divis Street and, and, and Clannard and, and across the Ordine on shorelands and spray <laughs> spray civilian, just ordinary people's houses with heavy machine gun fire and then thousands of loyal, drunken loyalist pogromists come in and burn these people's houses, right? And like that, that great Irish Republican revolutionary Max Hastings was there at the time and, and he says this is just like, what is going on? This is the United Kingdom. He was there and he saw it and he just, and his, his, his uh, accounts of it are, well, there you go. Yeah, you yeah, know, I mean, there's, 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 anybody, there's, there's an interesting, so, I was just saying, there's an interesting precedent in that, in, which is that, you know, elements of the, uh, sort of the, the embedded um, sort of British media or ruling class um, sort of like, um, you know, even by their standards finding some of these policies completely, you know, horrifying and, and, and mystifying at the time. I'm thinking of, um, you know, the, the foundation of the, um, uh, of, uh, uh, of the of the of the police force in the new northern statelet at its outset, where you know there's even articles in the Daily Mail uh, uh, written, you know, by 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 people saying if, if if this takes place, this will lead to the most horrendous uh, uh, violence um, perpetrated of the Catholic mi minority. Uh, you know, so e even members of their own kind of self-interested class are uh, are balking at oh, quite yeah. how you know. But that cognitive dissonance kind of dissipates quite quickly. You know, when you return home and you're not worried about the place. But like, so in essence, what what the the state does and what like Heath and, uh, uh, and Maudling do, you know, uh, really quickly is they just basically hand the British army to Chichester Clark and then the Falkland and say, put a lid on this, shut this down. And then what, what you get is, you know, uh, July 1970, you get the false curfew. The false curfew is a key event in, in the consolidation and creation of the provisional IRA. The following year, then you get internment, like August, it's like, you know, and you get like you get the situation where the British army are in play just to lift nationalists and they torture people. And then whenever the nationalist population use democratic pro protest and, and hit the streets at the end of January 1972 in order to protest against it, the British army go in and, sh and just shoot 14 of them. And then get this great like whitewash through widgery to try and absolve themselves of responsibility. So again, it, it, it was 
essentially created a mini Vietnam and created the provisional Republican movement through, you know, this complete disregard for the, the historical mess and the structures of discrimination and the problems that their state had created. It essentially says the Irish question doesn't exist anymore. Here, look, here's the army, James, you know, the way you were private school with me and, you know, rah, rah, rah. Here, go and, like, sort this out. And what, what they essentially do is they create a working class insurgency in areas of Ireland where there was no real history of republicanism. Like West Belfast is renowned today as you know this great republican place. It was the least republican part of nationalist Ireland. Devil Erica beat by three to one by Joe Devlin in 1918. It's a Hibernian stronghold with large enlistment in the British Army. It's it's more akin really to an Irish immigrant community in industrial Britain in terms of its outlook. In fact, there's probably more, there were probably more Republicans in Glasgow and Liverpool than there were in Belfast. But this is, and, and what the, what counterinsurgency does is it actually creates a, a working class insurgency. It, it creates, this great, Paisley had spent the 1960s railing and warning about the IRA. He conjured, he'd resuscitated um, uh, you know, a historical ghost. They were on the road out. Yeah, and the same yeah. thing happens. Derry, Derry, like Derry never has a strong Republican movement. Never has a strong Republican tradition. Even during the War of Independence, it's still, you know, strongly constitutionally nationalist. Again, you know, the, 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 the conduct of the state and the way that they essentially try to obliterate and completely coerce. And, and it's direct. It's not directed against, you know, Catholic solicitors and doctors and well-heeled people in South Down. It's specifically directed against Nazis working class areas. And they, they essentially create the insurgency that it takes 20 years to you know, negotiate with. And they nearly have it beaten. They nearly have it beaten in 1979. <laughs> they do exactly the same thing again. This, this, this sort of brings us it brings us back to this question of um you know um, um inevitability uh, again or, or people that would contest that these things are inevitable you know when I was growing up again you know there, there was this sense as an observer from uh, from from England that you know um, the way people spoke about the troubles was that they were they were, they were historical inevitability based on uh, ethno nationalism you know but there was no there was no unpacking of uh, of you know of quite why um you, you know um, any form of of sort of um, ethno uh, religious differentiation might have been inbuilt into the state <laughs> like you know or, or, or oppression was built into the state um you know and i think um i wanted to pick up on on, on something else there as well uh, because um you know i think <sighs> I, I sort of want to. We often think about this in terms of like you know, and like you said that these pre-existing enclaves of like militant, rabid republicanism, you know. But if that's the case, then why is there a distinction to be made between those who are from Republican backgrounds already involved in Republican activity and the 69ers? Like, what, 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 why, what, you know, why does that take place? That, that's something that, um, that, that I think is completely overlooked in certainly in in, in the English media. You know, they would talk about someone like Martin McGuinness. In the same way that they would talk about someone like, uh, like you know, I'm trying to think of like, like Joe Cahill, you know, and 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 the and the experiences there are different, you know, surely. Oh yeah, it's it's it, it's it's night and day. But again, it's it's there, there's this sort of liberal fascination with ideas, and that, and again, going back to the historians and stuff, there's this ridiculous, like this incredible notion that somehow the commemoration of the 1916 rise in the 1966 fuels the creation of the provisional IRA. And you go, the provisional IRA are, are a product 
of institutionalized sectarianism and discrimination and some of the most wrong-headed and stupid uh, security po policies in, in British history. You know what I mean? Like it was it, the, the, the manner in which, you know, someone like Martin McGuinness becomes involved in Republican politics it, it, it is a product of the, the, the successive failures of the state. First of all, the failures of the union state to be able to reform itself because it's institutionally and it's in the very DNA and fabric of it, it is sectarian and reactionary. Like this idea that, you know, we celebrate a hundred years of Northern Ireland and, you know, the, these people are trying to say, why can't we all live together in Northern Ireland? You know, what, why do you want a border poll or why do you want unification? Why can, or make our wee country work? This place was never a legitimate political entity. Like it was carved out. It, it doesn't follow any ethno, uh, there's no ethnic dimension even or con consistency to its borders. It, it was essentially just a land grab, a land grab that was to, grab, to, to try and contain and maintain and to control the biggest feasible territory possible through massive, massive security intervention. Like in, 19, in 1924, when there's no violence in Ireland, no, the civil war is over in Ireland, right? I think the statistics are I might be wrong, but I don't think I am. I think there's a, there's a policeman. What is it? Yeah, there's a policeman for every 650 people in England and Wales, and there's a policeman for every 700 people people in Scotland. There's a policeman for every 140 people in the six counties. Like, and 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 who are they likely to be policing? You know, sorry. Well, they're policing one third of the population. Exactly. <laughs> Mm, yeah you know so, uh, like under understand it in those terms and then think about well what's the basis of of, of change the basis of, of of any sort of if you're talking about processes of reconciliation and whatnot is is go back to tone and mccracken and go back go back to thomas russell and you can't you, james Connolly says very famously in 1913 about working class loyalism he says well no good can come from blaming them only bad and evil can come from truckling to them. You, you have to present, you, you can't overcome and overhaul sectarianism within the structures of sectarianism. The Good Friday Agreement and the institutions in which they're based are based on sectarianism. They're based on that, that and my argument would be that very partial sectarian analysis. The, the only way to transcend that then is, is to start thinking in terms of a civic nationalism, a civic nation based on universal rights in the tradition of the, the radical enlightenment. Now, where in, where in our history do we have examples of that? We've loads. We have just talked about the fact that, you know, Catholic and Protestant female mill workers were meeting on the Crumlin Road in 1919 and working together, and they were voting for Protestant socialists, anti-partitionists, to represent them on the council. And that was obliterated, was smashed through sectarian violence that was orchestrated by a unionist elite that was a component of the British political establishment. It wasn't distinct from them. They're not, they're the same people. They go to the same schools. They drink at the same clubs. They're related to each other. You know what I mean? Have you, have you ever, ever actually heard any of the Northern Ireland Prime Ministers speaking? The only one who actually sounded like he was ever from the North was Faulkner and he was dead posh. He was that posh he died from falling off his horse. Right? So like, you know, Chichester Clark, Captain Terence O'Neill, 
Basel, go right back, James Craig. If you actually yeah. heard audio of James Craig, he got a public school by accident. He's a millionaire. He had five mansions around Belfast. So this is like, you know, and, and the, the, it's like Marx says, uh, and it, it obviously doesn't operate to the same extent in, in 21st century Britain as it did in 19th century Britain, but you couldn't replace Irish people for any sort of immigrant, really. And it's that, and it's that manipulation of race and concepts of race in order to divide working class people, which has essentially been the British political establishment's playbook for the past two, two and a half hundred years. You know, and that's, you know, so yeah. definitely since the revolution. No, no, absolutely. I mean, um, this might be a, this might be a good stage to sort of um we, we, we've mentioned marx there and like uh, you know this uh this podcast is you know the subtitle is the history and politics um of irish republicanism i'm quite open about the fact that i i come at this from a marxist perspective i will have plenty of guests on that won't be marxists absolutely um but um i know that um something that you, that you sort of um are quite upfront about is you know you, you are you are coming from a particular school um of um, of thought on these things uh, you're openly a marxist openly a socialist um and i may i may ramble a little bit here but i thought um i wanted to bring up um, an interview that you did with um, northern visions which is i believe a local belfast based tv channel uh yeah so um that was not not long after you launched your blog actually and you said something that really struck a chord with, chord with me in that you know um, like i said i went to high school um in in the, the 90s by the time i was high school age it was 1997 so you know my first year of high school is uh tony blair and new labor coming to power it's the landslide election that year um and then you know, so throughout the entirety of my um sort of education after primary school up to undergraduate level pre-financial crisis you know we're told that we're living through the end of history liberal democracy capitalism neoliberalism's triumphant soviet blocs fallen uh, you know concepts like marxism and socialism and education then for me they were seen as you know at best by my by my teachers and lecture, lecturers as a kind of eccentricity right you know this kind of harmless eccentricity you know i wrote a piece about this on um on the blog um, it's called learning history at the end of history um and you know i vividly remember um, you know a university lecture i went to the university of glasgow in the early 2000s i vividly remember a university lecturer literally laughing at me in front of a packed lecture theater when you know when, when i declared myself a socialist that i was coming from a socialist position um it seemed to him to be such a preposterous outdated notion at that time you know um so you know th there's but it, but the one thing that when i was growing up that i think um that, that really sort of was the foundation of my interest in, in republicanism and my interest in irish history was the fact that uh, this is something that, that you said on, on that program as well is that if i turn the tv on I can clearly see one part of the British Empire, one part of the British Empire that you know that, that Britain lays claim to at least, where history hasn't ended, <laughs> you know, and 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 that's the North of Ireland, <laughs> you know. So um, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit, perhaps, about um, what were your experiences of uh, growing up um, as a young person in in Tyrone uh, while that conflict was was still very much uh, live, um, and how did that impact your education? Yeah, well. Uh... I'm from a, I'm from a working class community, right? So the community I'm from, the, the town that I'm from would have been about 60, 40 nationalist. And there was an invisible divine line. And I, I didn't know any Protestants until maybe known a handful of them, you know, but I wouldn't have been really Protestant friends or anything like that there. So you had like two almost parallel social permits. It's just that the nationalist one was shorter and stumpier and broader based than the Protestant one. Yeah. And the within my community then there was a very clear class consciousness i was always conscious of class and i was all conscious of class possibly because the 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 conception of particularly catholic middle class people would have been that they've been soft in terms of 
the conflict. Whereas most of the people who I would have been peers with and would have grown up with and the people who I would have been the GA with and the people would have either had quite a proactively supportive attitude towards the provision of IRA and their movement or a, a, a sort of not even neutrality, a, a, a conception, an understanding of why they were doing it. So it, it always struck me as particularly strange whenever I would be confronted by middle-class teachers and priests in school, or when I'd be watching the television, that this sort of very monothean, black and white de demonization, the de demonology of Irish Republicanism, to me was quite strange because I kind of went, well, hold on, I'm an Irish Republican. When I was walking around the streets, there were loads of young working class people from British cities and towns running about where I lived with guns and stopping me and searching us and harassing us and just basically, uh, you know, helicopters. <laughs> it was just, you know, looking back in retrospect, when you're young, you accept the world as it's presented to you, the reality that it's presented for you. But like, essentially, I lived in a highly militarized society. Where the, the area where I was from, because the provincial area were quite active in it, was essentially saturated with members of the British Army and the security force. And, you know, and, and it's a strange sort of experience because what you're being told, both from what, what I call in my book, the surrogate establishment, the Catholic middle class, and, you know, I would have had some teachers who would have been Republican in their politics, but quite quietly Republican in their politics, probably. The vast majority of them were, would have been constitutional nationalists. The television was just just an unremitting, you know, ideological assault. So, you know, kind of. So, what that does for you in terms of like growing up is that automatically you're you're conditioned to go, hold on, I'm not going to accept everything that I'm told. That you know that that there's a definite contradiction between what the official narrative of, and you know, I was getting three official narratives. I was getting my community's version. I was getting the Catholic Church and the Catholic middle classes and the Catholic educational systems version. And I was getting the Ministry of Defence's version because that's what basically the BBC was. And uh, while uh, on reaching maturity of, of some sort of description, I, don't com I haven't completely uh, sort of confirmed or accepted everything that I got from my community's uh, position or, you know, that I'm, I'm not somehow have some sort of rose-tinted nostalgic sort of idea about what it was like to be a working-class Republican in East Tyrone and what working-class, that somehow there were some sort of uber mention, <laughs> you know, faultless, faultless individuals. I think that, that that the type of politics and the, the, the ideology that they proposed and the type of agency that they demonstrated compared with the other two sections, to my mind was preferable and I would have had solidarity then always because I, I was I was always made keenly aware of the fact and my peer working class people always made very keenly aware of the fact that you were working class and that republicanism was wrong so I always had this idea and I've carried it with me all my life that I would have an overt sensibility for other working class people in struggle you know, and what, what infuriated me an awful lot when I hit university was that all these, <laughs> be careful about what noun I use, 
these academics who claim to be Marxists used to roll their eyes and lament the fact that, you know, Irish republicanism or the Irish history did not conform to the framework, the framework of, you know, the traditional progression of what socialist politics should be. And I obviously turn around and go, hold on a wee minute. There is a working class insurrection going on and these people are politically conscious and they want a, a, a socialist future. It just doesn't happen to fucking confirm to the sort of weird structures that you've created in your head about what it should look like. It just doesn't suit you. So therefore you reject it. But it's actually happening. There are actually working class people who have a sense of themselves as working class, engaged in political activism, trying to achieve something in terms of, a, of an ideology and political objectives, which confirmed a socialist conception of what a society would be about, co-ownership. You know, was it particularly well worked out? Was it particularly well informed? It was, it was as well worked out as well informed as some of the tripe that it was being given in university by people who, you know, who, who, you know, claim, who claimed that they sh should have known a lot better, but, but didn't seem to. So that, that was, you know, that's what it was. Uh, I was very fortunate, you know, my family weren't personally touched by the conflict, which means that I'm kind of like almost an exception. I obviously knew friends of mine who, who were bodily affected by it and you know had people killed and stuff and and I obviously know a lot of people who took part in the, the conflict and some of them went to jail and stuff like that there. But I was very fortunate in that sense. But the the the, the key thing to me always was that essentially I, I reckon I was always very conscious of being working class and I also always viewed my politics not in some sort of narrow nationalistic or ridiculously sort of uh, I never understood what the people in my community were doing in some sort of uh, idealistic nationalist sense. It never, that never really rang through to me. It always appeared to be that there was a, a community here which had a, which, which had a tradition where I from had a tradition of republicanism, not really like <laughs> Belfast or Derry. It had, it had an established tradition of working class activism and republicanism and to be a working class person from East to Rome, no one would ever have, have, some people might have told you not to engage in Republican politics because it wasn't worth it, but they would have understood that there was a tradition there and there would have been an, understand, an understanding of why people did it. And uh, But above all, I think that the, the, it's a working class element of it. So then whenever you know, I go to university, you're presented, you're, 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 a door is open to you and you're asked, you know, forget who you are, forget what your experience of life is. In fact, cut your ties with who you are and what your life experience has been. And we will, you know, <laughs> come inside. It's lovely here. And, uh, and I just, just constitutionally couldn't do it. I just, first of all, I probably wouldn't be able to ever go home and see my parents again, which would have been quite, uh, a step but I knew that what they were offering was redundant in terms of what it is to be a person who's conscious of themselves and has some sort of positive idea about what your agency can achieve as an individual within a network of similarly minded individuals without any illusions you know I think that's an awful lot of the despondency that infected an awful lot of these academic they don't even call themselves Marxist Marxian scholars is that they, they used Marx as a template to try and understand history in the universe. And then they went, oh my God, I can't change anything myself. 
I'm completely pessimistic. I think I just completely swallow the status quo in the system. But I use the skills that I have acquired through, you know, reading QR marks in order to control all the bewildered herd and all those sheep outside. And that's that, that, that to me seems to be something that, that's quite common to not just academia, but to, to politics in general, is that, you know, you, you come from a reasonably comfortable middle class background and you get to exhibit a little bit of radicalism in your youth and you read a bit of QR marks. And you understand the dialectic and you understand the class basis and you understand that society is essentially based on the division of labor and the fact that, you know, small elite are kept in their position by the suffering and the oppression of the majority of the people that are alive. And then you use those political skills and that analytical skill set in order to keep things the way they are. And, you, you know, just look at you know, the, the, the Labour Party. <laughs> look at the Conservative Party. Liz Truss and Michael Gove. No, youthful Michael Gove in particular, former member of the Labour Party. You know? Yeah, yeah, from a from a working class Aberdeen fishing. We well portrayed, I think. Yeah, yeah. As well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unbelievable. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think this this all sort of brings on to the, the final question that I've got for you, Fergal, which is just, um, you know, we, we've touched a little bit there on your experience of education, how that's influenced your your viewpoint. But um, obviously, uh, at the moment, you're um, you're still involved in teaching and educating yourself. Um, I believe are you still at St Mary's? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, obviously, you know, central to your blog, central to um, your conception, I think, of your republicanism uh, quite intimately is the is the, re, uh, the, 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 the restoration of the Irish language. Um, so your blog's bilingual. Um, I know you've worked in Irish language education schools using like immersion theory, that, that kind of thing. Um, uh, just say a little bit. Uh, we've, we've, we've got about sort of 10, 10, 10, 15 minutes left. Say a little bit um, about um, the centrality of the Irish language and its restoration to, to your politics and to the, the wider politics of modern republicanism. So the, the, the first thing is Martin O'Kane, who was a, a very famous Irish language writer. is actually, I think he taught in Trinity. And he also was the leader of the, the, the Guild Talk Civil Rights Movement. He says, she, if you the Gaelic, I'll hold the Heron, she I'll hold the Heron, I'll hold the Gaelic, the restoration of the Irish language is the reconquest of Ireland, the reconquest of Ireland is the restoration of the Irish language. Language in and of itself is it, it, just a, it's a form of human communication. If you decontextualize it and you say that it's not a political issue, but if you actually understand Irish history and you understand the colonial nature of Irish history, then you will immediately understand that the deconstruction and the obliteration of indigenous culture was a central element in the construction of a colonial mentality and a colonial state. And that an awful lot then of how uh, power structures in society were occluded were through cultural domination and cultural imperialism. So people nowadays who say, why are you politicizing the Irish language? Well, the Irish language is inherently political. It's inherently historical and by there are two things going on in my head whenever I'm, I don't speak Irish to my kids, for instance, I bring them up uh, bilingual. It's not some sort of atavistic nationalist hatred of England or th this idea that Irish is somehow some sort of superior idiom or language. It's an expert, it's, it's, uh, it's based myself within the context of Ireland's colonial history and it's a rejection. It's, a re it's, it's, it's an expressed rejection of Ireland's colonial subjugation and the history of British involvement in Ireland. And it's through the articulation of me as a person through the indigenous language as an expression of my own political autonomy and my rejection of structural 
colonialism and racism and the obliteration of indigenous culture that went on in Ireland and went on globally. And I don't have any concerns about anybody who doesn't agree with that or thinks that that's wrong-headed. That's my personal decision. It's also a decision that's conditioned by what later stage neoliberalism has essentially did to society, which has you know, commodified everything, turned everybody into a consumer and a, and a sort of a, an autumn <laughs> with, within uh, the structures of capitalism and has denuded people of any sort of sense of self or identity. And it has brought, out, brought everything down to this sort of base uh, commodified and commercialized monotone. So if I can uh, converse me on it, it's also really good because Alexa doesn't understand what I say. So that's, that's, that's another. <laughs> so the secure crowds are probably still having to hire somebody to, to, to bug me or something like that, you know, so which, which, is, which, is also, which is also a benefit. But what it is then, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an articulation of me as an individual within an historical community, the sense of myself and what the history of who I am and where I'm from is. And it's also a rejection then of the, the, the sort of massive ideological pressure that the individual is compelled to live under within modern society, where in essence, the measure of people is in you know, their level of consumption, what they own. How, it's just, I, I taught in a secondary school and particularly with the young men and uh, the level of mental health issues, the, the corrosive sort of influence of social media, the lack of escape, the lack of autonomy and in individual development as a person and the pressure to conform was really scary, even from someone who grew up in, you know, quite an insular rural community where there would have been quite a lot of conformity and probably would have been a lot of, they talked about earlier on, there would have been a lot of attitudes now that I would overtly reject. There would have been quite a lot of misogyny, quite a lot of homophobia. When I, when I was growing up in East Throne in the 1980s, you know, it was sort of some of the more repressive mores of being an Irish Catholic were still in, in full force in that period. But there was nothing like, I think, the same all-encompassing and inescapable compulsion to compel and pressure to be a certain type of person and have a certain type of identity and life as young people are, are, are currently being placed under at the minute. And I think it's all linked uh, at some sort of level to the, the changes in the nature of society co consequent of the, the, the type of, of, of highly demands and commoditized capitalism in, in which we live at the minute. And that, that's why it's, it's, it's just, but it's also, and you don't, you don't have to quantify everything. It's also beautiful. Irish is beautiful. It's like, it's incredible. And I, I love English. I think English is a fantastic language. I grew up speaking English. I, you know, I have my I have my favourites, you know, about William Blake. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be that keen on the Conservatives, but when I grew up, like I, uh, you know, I made a point of reading all of Dickens, and then when I found out what a terrible racist and anti Irish person he was, <laughs> it kind of disappointed me, you know, because I could really see the humanity on his pages. So that's you know that's it, and it's also you know, it's a strange idea, you know, that. And it's prevalent in Ireland as much as in English. It's like, why, why do you need to learn another language when you speak English? 
Sorry that cuts off a little bit abruptly, but uh, me and Fergal carried on talking about things that, while interesting, are sort of beyond the purview of this uh, this podcast. Um, but I hope you enjoyed the first episode of The Echo of the Thunder. Uh, remember, we've got um, Liz Gillis talking about women in the revolutionary period and their contributions to the national liberation struggle. That's for International Women's Day on March the 8th, so one week from now. Look out for that. Um, and if you enjoyed the show, please do give me a good review. Um, go to iTunes, Spotify, um, any other podcast provider or platform that you get this on. Um, give us a good review and um, hopefully we'll send more people this way and they can join us on this journey where we discover the history and politics of Irish republicanism. Um, so once again, if you want to keep up to date with the podcast, you can go to echoandthunder.substack.com and you can go to patreon.com forward slash Daniel Baker if you'd like to help fund me recording these podcasts and making them and also my writing. Um, thanks a lot and we'll see you next time.